Bell, I got the hell come in the kitchen. Mar Bell, ah, 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 keeping on and on. On and on. Episode 28. Dr. Amish El Dodger, coming at you. Check it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, everybody. Quadcast still representing. I hope you guys are staying sane, doing your social distancing, physical distancing part to combat COVID-19. And thanks for listening, everybody. I am super stoked to tell you about our episode with Dr. Adalja. We cover all things COVID. For example, how is it transmitted? You're hearing a lot of controversies on whether we should be wearing masks in society, for example. What's the reliability of our tests? What's the overall landscape of, of COVID-19 right now, especially where he is in, in the United States? We talk about how we reintegrate into society. He has a great article out in Medium that was in late March that kind of outlined what are the steps we really need to do to be able to get back to society as we know how. And also, like, what's the timing? Like, how far off are we from reintegrating into society? So excellent conversation with Dr. Aldaja. Before jumping into it, let me tell you about our sponsors, audible.ca. I'm telling you, Audible changed my game. Being able to listen to books on the go, you could adjust the speed. I listened to my my books at 1.5 to double speed just to be able to go through that many, that many more books. Improve knowledge, improve game, all for a reasonable price. Use the sign-up code attached to the show notes and you get your first month free. Game changing. Second sponsor, BetterHelp, online counseling service that provides reliable, efficient, convenient counseling at your disposal. Times like this when we're all stressed, social isolation, it's tough. So, you know, these guys are excellent. Use the promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. One last housekeeping item. We just started to do webinars on specifically on COVID-related issues for now, just to be able to provide that much more information for clinicians and people on the front lines, and also to be able to ask questions to the experts. And so look for sign-up opportunities on our social media posts, whether that's uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page. And on the show notes, you'll see something. We'll also have an ability for you guys to sign up for our webinars. Right now, we'll probably be aiming to do them every one to two weeks. We'll see how the uptake is. And please provide feedback if you find it useful or not. A whole goal is for us to be able to change the boogie, you know, inform our clinicians and the public on how we could combat this thing. So please let us know. Okay, let me tell you about Amesh Adalja. He is an infectious disease specialist at John Hopkins University Center for Health Security His focus is on emerging infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He's worked on U.S. government panels to decide on guidelines for treatment of plague, botulism, and anthrax. 
You may have seen him on MSNBC and on CNN talking about our preparedness for COVID-19. This guy's a hustler and he's knowledgeable and I'm so excited to bring him on the show. So without further ado, Dr. Adalja. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. Amish Adalja, infectious disease specialist from John Hopkins. We are so privileged to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and I got to tell you, people, my friend here has been hustling. I think he's already, this is uh, April 10th, and I think he's already, it's 9 o'clock, and I think he's already made an appearance on MSNBC and CNN. So I really appreciate you taking the time. First question I got for you is, I want to hear your 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 perspective on transmission of COVID-19. Because we hear all these different approaches in terms of, you know, should the public be wearing masks? Should, you know, how how extensive or how transmittable is COVID-19? So as an expert in the field, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Sure. So what we know about COVID-19 is this is a, a coronavirus and coronavirus is spread through the respiratory route primarily. That means coughs and sneezes that go from one person to another or Maybe the coughs and sneezes land on land on a surface, or they land on on somebody else, and they can actually uh, transmit that way. So this is called droplet transmission, where a particle maybe travels three to six feet before it falls to the ground by the action of gravity, and it can also live on on it can be viable on surfaces. Some other transmission that you might have heard about is called aerosol or airborne transmission, and that's something that's characteristic of a virus like measles, where the air itself is infectious. For hours after somebody has left it that mm-hmm. uh, that place, what we've seen here is that with the coronavirus is there are some experiments that show aerosolization is possible when people cough or when people breathe or when they sing, for example, indefinitely in hospital situations. But it's hard to quantify if that's actually happening in the community because if you look at the epidemiology, meaning the number of cases that we're seeing and who's getting infected, it doesn't appear to be spreading like an airborne virus. But we do take precautions in a hospital because certain procedures where you're manipulating someone's airway or putting them on a certain type of machine, a vent, mechanical ventilator or a, a BiPAP machine or suctioning them or doing a bronchoscopy, all of those are called aerosol generating procedures. And there, there's heightened protections. But in my analysis, I don't think that there is much airborne transmission going on outside of those spe- special healthcare settings. Okay. And so, a uh, couple questions. So when we talk about the, you know, a droplet from a patient that or a person that sneezes or what have you, and it can land on surfaces, how long do you think that th- th- you could still contract COVID when it's on a surface? So you'll find articles and lab studies where you can see the virus remaining viable on certain surfaces for several days. But it's important to remember that in those lab studies, everything is perfect in terms of the humidity, the UV exposure, the temperature and the surface. So what I think in most everyday situations, this virus isn't going to remain viable for less than a, less than a day on most surfaces, mm. or for more than a day on, on most surfaces. And I think that it's, there's certain surfaces like in like kitchen counters and desks and, and household items that, that are definitely vehicles for spread. Mm-hmm. I don't know what proportion of spread occurs by these types of interactions versus person-to-person interaction. Mm-hmm. But then there's lots of scenarios people can 
can uh, dream up where they're worried about their mail or they're worried about their groceries, where I don't think there's a real transmission risk in the same sense as, as your kitchen counter. Awesome. Excellent. And so we're going to get into a little bit about how we reintegrate into society, but maybe we could speak to about how the general public could reduce their risk of acquiring COVID-19. Like we're in an, we're in an era obviously right now where we're doing our physical isolation. As I mentioned, it is April 10th, but what are other common measures people could be doing? So in terms of re-entering society or just now? for Just now, you know, like, you know, in terms of, like I'm alluding to like the hand washing and the mask kind of approach. Right, ahead. sure. So what, what we're doing now basically is social distancing and, and hand washing and trying to tell people to avoid touching their face and cleaning down surfaces. And, and what these are very blunt tools because we don't have an antiviral, we don't have a vaccine. So this is the only way you can really interfere with the disease transmission. One other thing that's somewhat controversial is you're seeing the use of masks, which had been very common in some certain parts of the world. But in the United States, for example, there were recommendations for the general public not to wear these masks. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing a new CDC recommendation advising people wear homemade masks. And what that's based on is an idea that there are individuals who have the virus but have no symptoms at all, and they may be able to transmit it through their coughing and talk, through, through, even without coughing or sneezing but through their normal everyday talking mm-hmm. to other people. And what's, what that mask is supposed to do is serve as a physical barrier for those droplets that, that maybe come out of people's mouths when they talk. And this is somewhat controversial, and there's no clear evidence that, the, that wearing these masks is actually beneficial. And there are some studies that show that wearing a cloth mask does not stop the droplets uh, that much from coming out of your mouth. So mm-hmm. this is something that the CDC has recommended and certain people are wearing as another measure. It's not necessarily to protect the wearer from getting infected, but to protect other people from being hit with droplets from the wearer. And I'm not sure that there's enough data to say that that actually works yet. It's become a recommendation mm-hmm. in my own practice. I'm wearing a mask when I'm, when I'm seeing patients or when I'm in a healthcare facility, but I'm not wearing a mask when I'm out in the general public at this time. Yeah, that was that was going to be my follow up question of what, what how you're handling it, and I, my practice is the same. You know, I, I, you, after reading that Tulguande article, especially within hospital, making sure that you know I'm masked up anywhere in uh, patient, especially during patient encounters, so important there. So why don't we dive into like how we reco- how we reintegrate into society? You, I mean, that article that you published in Medium late March really inspired me because it was not just doom and gloom and what what's what we're up against. It's how do we overcome? How do we get back to society? Because, you know, we had uh, Paul Offit on a couple of weeks back and he talked about, you know, what are these risks of a prolonged social isolation period, not only on the economy, but also like on the healthcare system in general, patients are going to unfortunately have to suffer, you know, elective surgeries aren't happening, mental illness increasing. So from your perspective, how do we, how do we get back to, to society? First, I think you really have to think about this from a philosophical standpoint and, and realize that we've got two major things going on. We've got a a virus that's spreading that has the potential to 
collapse hospital systems and lead to death and suffering. And it's contagious from person to person. And we have no tools against it except for social distancing. Mm. And on the other, we have to realize that having a functioning society with an economy that's, that's moving, where people are earning their livelihoods, where people are able to, to do things that they enjoy, and that they're able to get care for all of their health care needs, both of those things are, are true. And there's a, got to be a balance between trying to keep this virus at bay and not have our healthcare systems inundated on the one hand and allowing people to be able to, to flourish as well as have their other healthcare needs met. And I do think that there isn't much balancing going on, at least at the early stages of these economic shutdowns where everything was solidly focused on COVID-19 and, and rightly so, but there was too little attention paid to what the long-term consequences would be to economic shutdowns and how to think about other healthcare needs and what exactly is an elective surgery and what exactly is a life-sustaining mm-hmm. business versus a non-life-sustaining business. Mm-hmm. None of that was really a part of the consideration. I think now, as we see curves flattening in New York and California and, and Seattle, you are seeing people start to talk about this. But that's what we have to, to do is because the longer you have an economic shutdown, the more the costs are going to rise. And these are not just economic costs. These are people's uh, livelihoods, their psychological well-being, and their other medical conditions. We, we know that people have elective procedures scheduled or trying to schedule them. And elective doesn't mean they're going to get a nose job or cosmetic surgery. Elective means you've got some flexibility in scheduling something, not infinite flexibility. So if you're talking about a cancer screening colonoscopy, you need to do that at a certain time period for it to be effective. The same is true for biopsies. And, and there are other conditions, for example, psychiatric conditions, which I've personally seen people have exacerbations of because they couldn't get to group therapy mm-hmm. because group therapy was canceled because of social distancing. We're seeing alcohol consumption increase. So all mm-hmm. of these types of things have to be weighed against COVID-19. And I think that sometimes that doesn't happen. And, and I'm an infectious disease doctor who, who warned about pandemics, who knew that there were, there, there were consequences like this that would happen. So it's not like I'm trying to say that, this, that, we, that we let off the, we, we, we let COVID-19 run rampant because we mm-hmm. can't do that either. It's just that this is a, a very complicated decision and, and there's, two, there's not a false alternative between doing everything as we, as we did in, in December and January versus allowing the virus to run versus locking down in a Wuhan style lockdown because that's all that matters without caring about what the other costs are. So I do think we need to start looking at businesses that are closed and thinking about which ones can be open, what modifications might need to be done for social distancing, and at the same time making sure hospital capacity has been augmented, diagnostic testing is intact, and then then you have to really think about high-risk individuals and make sure that they have certain guidance for, for their own social distancing, which may be more rigorous than, than what the general public does. Mm-hmm. There's ways to move forward here and, and have the best of the, the have a, a degree of control that's manageable of this virus on the one hand, as well as having some economic activity that allows people to, to live. Mm-hmm. So, and I like totally agree because, you know, it, it's just, it's a conversation I think that we're not, having enough, but I'm glad to hear that, you know, it's starting to make, uh, like this is starting to be addressed. So when we think about how to approach this, 
like what are the some of the things that we need to do like for example testing like in terms of uh, you know do you think we need to have immunologic capacity in terms of our testing or what scale or level of testing do we need to be doing do you feel like you know for example if you've been exposed do you think is is evidence suggesting that you're immune so that maybe you can re, re reenter the the workforce any thoughts on that sure so we do need to do much more testing than we're doing now and that includes diagnostic testing of individuals who are sick as well as antibody or serological testing to see who has been sick and to try and assess immunity. So we don't need to test every person in every country, but we need to have the ability to at least know what's going on in any community and in how, and have that influence how we handle social distancing. Mm-hmm. So if a community has a high prevalence of disease of recovered patients, it's much more different than someplace where the virus has not been. And you can have different social distancing policies based on that. And I do think that we still need to understand what antibodies mean, uh, how durable they are, what level of antibodies confer protection, and how much protection do they confer? Do they confer protection from, from reinfection or, or just from being symptomatic again? Mm-hmm. And are you contagious if you are just reinfected without symptoms in the presence of antibodies? Right. And we also need to be able to test every, we need to have rapid tests for people who have symptoms. We need to be able to know all of this very quickly and easily. It needs to be seamless like an HIV test. Right now, there's still bureaucracy. There's still worry about supplies for the test, reagents and and nasal swabs that people are refraining from testing everybody. I know in my own practice, I'm not testing probably just as many people as I am testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm especially not testing people with mild, mild, patients or patients that I'm not going to be, uh, that are not going to be admitted. Yeah. Cause that's a great, a great point too, in terms of the testing. Oh my God. Marlo. Sorry about that. The, the availability of testing, this is a big concern, you know, for us and, and also the turnaround time for testing. Like, so for example, at your sites, like what is the testing process? So I'm on staff at a couple of different hospitals. And just to be clear, I, although I, I work at a think tank at Hopkins, I work clinically in the Pittsburgh area in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So I'm on staff at some hospitals here. And it varies from, from place to place. But I would say in, in most situations, there is some kind of adjudication that's made that you have to decide you or uh, at one hospital, there's kind of a, a team, that a hotline that you call, and they decide if a person merits a test or not. And that has to do with their symptoms if they're being if they're being admitted or not, and and that and, and what their profession might be because healthcare workers have a lower threshold to be tested. Right. And then that then you do the test swab, and then in some places we do te- still test for respiratory viral viruses, other respiratory viruses, mm-hmm. and some places you don't. And then the coronavirus test is done usually off of the same swab. <clears throat> the turnaround time can vary between a day or in some places, you know two to three days, depending upon if the hospital sending it out or doing it in-house. Mm-hmm. And that's too long because we have to keep those patients in isolation if they're 100%. admitted or uh, people that, if people go outside, if people leave, if people go home, they have, they're kind of in limbo for a couple of days without really a, a good action plan for what to do. So these turnaround times ideally should be, you know, like what we're hearing with the rapid test within 15 minutes that we should be able to know just like we do for an HIV test. But 
Unfortunately, the, the, although those tests are around, they're not highly available at every hospital. And I think that that's really what we need to get to eventually to be able to have a really proper uh, ability to control this this virus completely. And do you have a sense of how far away we are from being able to have access to such technology? Well, the technology is there. For example, the Abbott test has been given FDA emergency use authorization. So it's there and some places have it. It's just not every place that has it. And that's the issue is getting that production ramped up of this type of technology so that it can be in every hospital, every doctor's office, every emergency department, every urgent care clinic. Mm-hmm. And and then you can really have a, have a, a, a policy that, that makes testing so simple that you have a lot more situational awareness of what the what the virus is doing in your community. And then you couple that with antibody testing to see who's been infected in the past. And then you can really have a perfect picture of what's going on in your community and then make a lot of decisions based on that information. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, we're not going to get there soon. We're going to have to be making decisions without all of that uh, because I do think that there is, we're now kind of hitting, getting close to a point where they're going to have to start making decisions about what social distancing recommendations are effective, which ones are not effective, what can be lifted and loosened, what can't be lifted and loosened. So we're going to be doing that, I think, imminently uh, mm-hmm. in many parts of the world. Yeah. So just to reinforce, like basically the technology is there, as you mentioned, it's just not available to all. You don't see it being available to all in the near future, whether that's rapid testing, antibiotics, but we're going to have to make some decisions based on, you know, the, the tech, the, the, the tests that we have available to us now. Yeah. It's such tough times and so many tough decisions that are going to be made, have to be made soon. Do you get a, a sense of like one of the common co- issues that we have in our hospital is how reliable our, our, our testing is? I, I'm wondering if you could comment on, you know, when you have a negative test, for example, like, are you, how confident are you that you're truly negative? And if you're, for example, negative and you believe it, like, at what point can you, you know, no longer, for example, be in a COVID ward, for for example? So this is a hard question. And I do think that there is a question about false negatives. So uh, false negatives happen with every test. And especially with respiratory viral tests, we worry about, for example, was the specimen adequate? Because it often involves a nasopharyngeal swab and that swab, how, that, how far that goes back in someone's nose, that's all operator dependent. And we often wonder, was the specimen adequate? The other question is, is the other issue is, is that people do have a different, differing viral loads and all tests have thresholds. So you can test too early or, or test at a point where the viral load is below a threshold and it will be called a negative. And then there's sometimes discrepancy between upper respiratory tract samples like the nasal swab in a lower respiratory tract sample like sputum. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're, one can be positive and one can be negative. So those are all of those limitations. And so I would say that there, there is some concern for false negatives. I don't think we as a, a healthcare community have actually addressed that, trying to understand what a false negative is, because there are patients that, that I've seen that I thought would be positive, almost certainly positive, which were negative. And based on some hospital policy, they do sometimes go out of the, the COVID units or go out of isolation. And, mm-hmm. and that does pose a risk to healthcare providers as well as to other patients if they, if they are truly positive, but the test was negative. 
and, and I do think that we're going to have to get better at thinking about this as we get more and more patients and as we have to, to deal with this on a day-to-day basis uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future. And the other thing is, is, if you have an alternative explanation, then I'm much more likely to believe the, the, the negative test, meaning that they didn't really fit the picture and now you've cultured a bacteria. So there are patients like that as well, or that they might have been having their shortness of breath may have been coming from a cardiac issue and not from a, an infectious issue. So I think you have to kind of interpret the test in light of the patient as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, yeah, it's so complex. And, and thanks for uh, clarifying some of these concerns because, uh, yeah, at our sites, it's, just, it's definitely something that's constantly evolving and it's also based on the amount of vol- like patients that we're seeing that are suspected of COVID-19, but yeah, it, it, it's a it's a true challenge. Are there any treatments that you hear about that you're, you're, that you're optimistic about, you know, because I think this is something that's also going to play into how we can get back to uh, normal society again, because you'll hear some, some talk about a vaccine, which personally, I don't think that's a realistic option in the near future. But yeah, I'm wondering if you could comment on anything that you feel optimistic about, or if you feel like, you know, this is all kind of, you know, pipe dream stuff. I am optimistic about antiviral therapies. Um, We do have multiple antiviral therapies in in clinical trials, um, as well as some repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine, which you hear about. But I do think that we we will likely have an antiviral, but it's important to remember that an antiviral is not a panacea and maybe something that is used in the hospital to decrease rates of mortality or de- decrease rates of being needed to be put on a ventilator. It may be something that you use in high-risk patients to avoid them getting pneumonia, but it's still not going to decrease the transmissibility that much of the virus. I don't think mm-hmm. that there is a Tamiflu right now on the horizon, but all there are in, in the f- farther back if you look in the horizon. So I, I do think that these are going to be important tools that we have to use on patients, but I don't think it's going to, to be something that changes people's total risk perception of this because they're going to really be using the critically ill patients, and that's a very small small number of them. So the main issue still is going to be hospital capacity. I don't mm-hmm. know that the drugs will preserve hospital capacity. I think a vaccine will do that, and I think the most optimistic estimates are 12 to 18 months. So we're going to be battling this virus for some time without a vaccine. What and in terms of like I forgot the term covalent antibodies. Have you had much reading about that? Or yes, there are there are efforts to do what's called convalescent sera, which has antibodies. So if a person recovers from this infection, they have antibodies in their blood that could presumably be effective in another patient. So there are efforts underway, and there had been already in China to collect the blood of survivors and use that that plasma on individuals who are sick with the virus to see if there is a beneficial effect. And that's been going, that those clinical trials are being set up now in the United States and they'd already went on in China. And there's some anecdotal positive evidence coming from China that this was effective. Mm -hmm. So some stuff down the pipeline, nothing screaming, making you scream of optimism yet, but the real helpful tool will be a vaccine, but we're, we're some steps away. Um, right. It's not that I'm not optimistic about antivirals. I just think that they're they're still not going to they're going to be part of the solution. They're not the whole solution. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is a fair question for you or not, but have you like one of the things that you know to get us back to society is knowing who's at highest risk of of 
getting sick from COVID-19, not only acquiring it, but getting sick of it. Cause I think, you know, uh, we realize how contagious and infectious it is. Any have in your practice or in your literature, in, in the literature, have you found there's patient groups specifically at highest risk? Cause the reason I, I, I think this is important to think about is because as you mentioned, if we could focus some of our isolation measures or preventative measures on specific groups, maybe this will allow for more quicker integration into society. Right now, we have a lot of data that shows that there are individuals that are at higher risk, but we don't know exactly how much each of these specific risk factors confers risk. So we know that each advancing decade of life has an increased rate of hospitalization and death. We know that comorbid conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, all, ha- all contribute, as well as lung disease and immunosuppressive conditions. But we don't have any granularity on exactly what the, what the odds ratio is, of, for example, of having to be hospitalized if you have diabetes versus not. We don't have that type of data, at least yet. I think that, that we're getting, you could probably calculate all of that. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's just kind of now gen- a general recommendation or admonition to those people with medical conditions or with advanced age, that they're the ones that are at highest risk. And I do think that you're going to see social distancing, even when it is relaxed, to still be something recommended for those high-risk groups as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm cognizant of the time, so I, I want to ask you, this is, might be a tough question, but I, I think it will just give us a sense of what your thoughts are. Like, how do you see this playing out? Like, really, how do you see it playing out? Like, you know, you're like whether you want to speak specifically in your area or in the country in terms of, you know, is when the curve flattens, how we reintegrate, is there going to be a resurgence in the, in the fall, in your opinion? Like, how do you see us really getting through this? I do think that this is going to be a seasonal coronavirus, meaning that it's going to be with us. I don't know that we'll get full seasonality in this summer uh, coming up in the Northern hemisphere because even though the virus has difficulties living on surf, being viable on surfaces during, during summer and hot months, it's, there's still so many people that are going to be susceptible to the virus that person-to-person spread may still occur to some degree uh, during the summer. <clears throat> but I do think it's going to be something that's with us in the, human, in the human species, like four of the other coronaviruses that cause about 25% of our common colds. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we're going to have until we have a vaccine. I do think that there's going to be a change in in risk perception among the public and among policymakers as we see that hospitals are able to, with help, meet the capacity needs that they have uh, with the medical surge that they're getting of patients. And that's going to allow us to probably relax some of the social distancing recommendations, some of the more extreme economic shutdowns, because like I said, more and more people are going to be able to quantify the cost of these economic shutdowns in terms of in terms of and in, in also in terms of the economic consequences as well as the, the life consequences that people are having and the other medical conditions that that are really going to have a measurable bump sometime in the future because of what was not happening during this time so i, I do think we are going to get to a place that we sort of live with this virus and have some containment measures in place or some mitigation in place but allow uh, the rest of the economy to, to work. I do think that there are going to be some issues with, for example, mass gatherings and trying to find a way to mm. do that safely. And that may be something that may really only come back in earnest after 
we have a vaccination available because it may be that any mass gathering would be too much for any healthcare system to handle if it led to a major influx of patients. And I think that's going to be maybe a maybe geographic by maybe it's going to vary geographically by by city by city on whether or not mass gatherings are allowed. And the same is true for professional sports, how that would be modified or, or movie theaters or, or Broadway shows. All of that, I think, has to it, it, there's going to be decisions and discussions about that. But I do think in general that, that we will start to see lifting of the economic shutdowns uh, in the near future. And and do you think people will be able to, like from a healthcare system's point of view, will be able to manage? Do you think healthcare providers will be able to protect themselves with all these concerns of, you know, are we going to have enough PPE and all that, all those considerations? That That's also, you know, when I think about what will help us guide our social distancing, one of the biggest conditions are is the, hosp- the level of hospital preparation. Do hospitals have enough? ICU beds, ventilators, staff, as well as the personal protective equipment. That has to all be intact because if you do get a surge and, and people are not able to be taken care of appropriately, it's just going to magnify this. So we want, we know that this will probably, you know, as you start to relax social distancing, you're going to see cases get a, a uptick and you want that uptick to be at a manageable clip for hospitals to be able to handle. And as part of that, they have to be adequately resourced, including having a durable supply of personal protective equipment where they're not worried about that supply. Yeah. So that's part of the equation. And in, in your world, are you guys, like, I know you're at multiple sites, but are you guys, how are you guys doing now? At the hospitals that I'm on staff at, I've had no problems with personal protective equipment. Like I said, I, I practice in the Pittsburgh area. And while we have you know, over a hundred people hospitalized in the city, in, in the city and surrounding uh, suburbs, we haven't been hit with a major surge. We've not seen any kind of issue with um, patient care being compromised or personal protective equipment issues. So I think that at least in the, the area of Western Pennsylvania, where I practice, we seem to be uh, handling this very well. And there, we're supposed to get a peak early, according to some models. So hopefully we'll get through the worst of it. And I think Pittsburgh isn't going to have a discrete spike the way New York City did. It may be more of a rolling uh, number of cases that stay below hospital capacity, hopefully because of the changes in the preparations we've made here. Uh, that sounds similar. Well, first of all, go Steelers. Second of all, the that sounds like a similar situation that we're in up in Ottawa. Like we're, you know, we've been saying that the surge should happen weeks ago. It said any time now. And, you know, our our ICU capacity, we, we have room. We're not being overrun. Our hospital's relatively empty compared to normal Emergency rooms are empty. So, you know, maybe this is doable, you know, time will tell. Yeah, I'm increasingly optimistic about many parts of the, of, of at least North America's ability to cope with this, especially when I'm in the hospital and talking to people, clinicians uh, like yourself. And sometimes you can get dismayed when you're talking to only public health people. So I think sometimes it's, uh, it's good to have clinicians talking about it because we're actually seeing what's going on on the ground uh, versus staring at models. A hundred percent. Cause uh, you know, I've, I've recently been on our local news talking about, you know, why there's reason to be positive at this time. Like we, we've, at least in Canada, we knew about this early. We've enforced early physical isolation. We have excellent public health, you know, and right now we're coping. And I, I, I just, I, you know, it's a lot of doom and gloom when you go on social media or just, conventional media 
And maybe the last thing I want to say is, and maybe I should have started with this, Abish, is how are you doing? You know, like you're you're hustling. You're like I said before, you're you're doing the social media stuff, which is great. You're doing CNN. You do you you're you're spreading the word about how to combat COVID nineteen. But like, and you're on front lines. So like, like how are you doing yourself? I'm doing well. I think that it's it's been a challenge to balance everything and to decide where my time is most valuable. I've been trying to do as much as I can, uh, and it does take its toll in terms of lack of sleep and being and being tired, but I'm, I'm making it through it. And I think it's you know, in the very beginning of this outbreak, I was, you know, it, it was quite, it's quite overwhelming, but I've had some ability to be able to, to manage my time a little bit better and gain some perspective on, on how to, how to do this because this isn't going away. And, and this is something that I'm going to have to deal with in all of its facets for, for some, some period of time with the, the career I've chosen. So that that's uh, something I've gotten to, be able to manage somewhat better, but it is going to be challenging for the next several months for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like we all been preaching to each other, we got to pace ourselves because as you mentioned, it's a long road ahead, but your work that you're doing, I got to tell you, super important, super valuable. We're appreciative of it. We are appreciative of you taking the time to teach us all about uh, COVID-19 and, and your lo- with your level of expertise and, you know, Love to have you on again. Really appreciate you taking the time, bud. Sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our conversation with Dr. Amesh Adalja. I hope that was useful for you guys. Please leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. Please don't hesitate to subscribe, whether it's on iTunes Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We really appreciate your support. Leave a five-star rating if you're up to it. I want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible for their support. As you may have seen, we're continuing to do some webinars on not just COVID-19 content, but other content just to give you an opportunity for some Q&A. So stay tuned for that. Please sign up when available. I want to thank our team at Solving Healthcare, continuing to produce amazing show notes. We're going to start a newsletter soon. Social media team, we really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Quadcast listeners, stay healthy, stay home, and remember, we'll get through this. Take care, everybody.